0: The number one characteristic that every person who is creative and profit from their ideas is curiosity and openness. You can't have progress without creativity. You can't have progress without ideas, innovation. You can't really move forward society without having all these things.
1: Welcome to What's Next Podcast with you, Mindy Francis. Maria Brito is an award-winning New York-based contemporary art advisor, entrepreneur, author, and curator. Her best-selling book, How Creativity Rules the World, was published by HarperCollins Leadership in March 2022 and was a winner of the International Book Awards in the business and entrepreneurship categories, as well as chosen by Next Big Idea Club as one of the best business and creativity books of the year. She's worked with some of the world's most renowned artists and institutions and has been an art advisor for many notable celebrities. In 2020, Brito was named by Art News as one of the visionaries who shapes the art world, and Complex Magazine selected her as one of the 20 power players in the art world. What's next, podcast? Welcome, Maria Brito, to the show.
0: Thank you, Yomindy. I am so happy to be here
1: um, after so long. I know. It's been too long since we've seen each other, but you are one of my favorite people (laughs) and such an avid supporter of anything I ask you to do. And I'm such a fan of yours because you're such an incredible woman, a phenomenal, creative businesswoman, and the list just goes on and on and on.
0: Well, thank you. I think that... I get a little shy when I listen to all these things because, you know, it's like tooting my own horn or something. But that doesn't mean it's not important to be thankful and to be driven and to appreciate our own accomplishments. And this is something that I tell to my children, I tell to young people that we live in the times where... It is very strange. Everybody wants to be famous, yet when people accomplish great things, then others want to tear them down, you know? So it's a very interesting paradox of our times that some people are working and operating from excellent levels and levels of excellence. And... uh, people of the internet, if you will, because that's where most of the comments and judgments come from, are just waiting for the slightest little thing to judge and point fingers and criticize and say, she doesn't deserve this, she doesn't deserve that, or whatever. But you know, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. And for everybody who's listening and watching, thank you.
1: And trust me, that was an abridged version. I, I literally could have gone on for two more minutes. It was hard for us to kind of put, squeeze that down into a little something. So to say that you're a multi-hyphenate is, is just an understatement. You touch so many mediums. How would you define your scope of expertise?
0: Well, as a contemporary art advisor, which is the backbone of really what I do, I help my clients live with art and build art collections for legacy, for investment, for aesthetic purposes, for the joy of living with art, and for gaining the culture that comes with that. And so that has become the centerpiece of all that I do. And therefore, everything else has a direct connection to that. So when I wrote this book, it's all around my experiences as an art advisor and seeing things through both the eyes of entrepreneurship and artistry. When I design my creativity online program was also a similar thing with a different audience in mind, because what I do as an art advisor is working with, you know, people who want to acquire art. And because I have learned so much in the 14 years that I have had my company, And I have worked with so many different people. I thought it was important for me not only to encapsulate for posterity, if you will, what I have done, but also give it to people who want to pivot, people who want to learn something new, people who want to get inspired by the possibilities. Because when you see that someone can do something, it gives you so much inspiration and power and strength to do Something with your life too. Yeah. So, the you know the ultimate thing that I I feel that I should you know talk about in like the encompassing of what I do is is that is bringing culture, knowledge, education, and investment opportunities in different ways to different audiences and 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 different constituencies, if you will, and yeah. so that's kind of in a very large. Nutshell. um, (laughs) (laughs) Nutshell, yes. No, it it makes perfect sense. And I
1: love how you explain that everything you do is tied to that nucleus of Mm -hmm. advising because Mm -hmm. you've had your hand in so many incredible projects. And I've had the great fortune of knowing you for uh, several years now and have been able to see so many of those projects. And I'm I'm so excited to get into that and talk about it in a little bit. But, you know, you've had quite the professional journey that also includes a pivot, Mm -hmm. an interesting pivot. Mm -hmm. Where did you begin and how did you become the professional that you are today?
0: Well, you know that I was a corporate attorney and I was born and raised in a very conservative Catholic family in Venezuela. And it's the type of thing of, In this house, you are a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're an engineer. The things that my parents, especially my mom, thought were dependable jobs and that people who went into arts or fashion or anything were going to starve eventually or, or forever, right? And obviously, my parents did not have the platform or the opportunity to live in the United States and become American citizens like I did. So they also come from a different time and it was the best that they could do. And so when I I finished law school in the U.S. and I moved to New York, obviously, I went to work in the law firms and I did the things that you were meant to do as a young attorney. And in the beginning, you don't really know what you're doing. The truth is because law school prepares you for a lot of thinking and a lot of processing tons of information in compressed amounts of time. And once you are in a law firm, you're just as at least a corporate attorney as I was, you're just sort of like reading contracts and learning the ropes in corporate American banking and things like that, which is what I was doing. And it was tremendously horrible, honestly. I mean, like anybody who has been in a corporate job, I mean, corporate jobs are great. Don't get me wrong. Look, there, yeah, there is always a person for those jobs. And, you know, we need banks, we need lawyers, we need those people. So please do not quit your job before knowing like if that If that is not what you are meant to do, because I know wonderful people who thrive in those very big and quote-unquote boring environments, but it wasn't for me. And I actually tolerated it and did it really well, honestly, because I don't know any other way of doing things for nine years. And in the meantime, I was going to gallery openings and I was collecting art for myself at a very small scale. And I was meeting with artists and I was sort of like getting myself more and more into this world of contemporary art. And I, I started paying attention. What's missing here, right? I mean, could I do this for a living? Could I be an advisor? Could I be a curator? Are people going to accept me without having an art degree? How is this going to look for me? And I realized that other advisors whom I was paying attention to, they were not my friends or anything. These were people that were acquaintances or whatever. They lacked a lot of emotion and it was highly transactional for them. And also, well, this was 14 years ago. Absolutely none of them had much to do with social media or blogging or anything like that. And mind you, I was an attorney. I mean, if I were to tell you, oh, my goodness, I was in fashion and I was already doing these things and, you know, no, I was like, well, these are the tools. And why are these people not doing that? Because I was doing my research and I was like looking around and see what I could gather. So, you know, I had my baby, my first child, and I thought to myself, I just cannot be in that law firm for the rest of my life. Because first of all, I'm going to miss seeing my child grow. And second, I freaking hate that. It's just not for me, you know? Let me just give myself a chance to do something that I like, that I think I'm going to be successful. And honestly, Mindy, as I look back, I'm like, how did I do this? It's like the kind of thing that, you know, (laughs) it's like you when you take a chance like that you just can't overthink it right. because if you do you're not gonna do it right, right? I, I'm as I, i'm much older now and i am considering how the art world is right now how the world is at large right now it would have been a completely different story and this is not to say whomever is considering a change you can do that when you're 30 40 50 60 80 whatever it like there is no age to actually make a meaningful meaningful change in careers and use all the skills that you have to get there but it's important to weigh the risks but not too much if you are considering all the things that can go wrong and Then you're not gonna do it because, as I'm telling you, I look back and I'm like, Jesus! I really was not very clear of the things that were gonna happen in front of me and the mountains that needed to be climbed, etc. But I wouldn't have it any other way because that is the way to learn. That is the way of entrepreneurship. That is the way of creative thinking. And it is all by doing thing that you get to cross bridges each time.
1: That's phenomenal. (laughs) That is some solid sage advice that's going to inspire someone. So your latest award-winning book, How Creativity Rules the World, is, is phenomenal. What inspired you to write a book on this particular topic?
0: Well, as I said prior, I had this moment where I said, well, so many people come to me and ask me, how did you transition and what is important in your mind to get to those big ideas and to do those big things and to have a business that both thrives but also fulfills you, right? Because, I mean, you can be thriving and not necessarily thrilled with what you're doing. And I started by putting together an online program inviting entrepreneurs and artists and business owners and people in corporate jobs to sign up to go through the curriculum and meet on Zoom. That was before the pandemic, by the way. It was four weeks. And so we would meet over four weeks in intensives and whatnot. And by the time it was over, people were crying like they didn't want it to be over, right? I mean, they didn't want the, the meetings to be, I mean, they had access to the curriculum because it, you know, they paid for it and it was all recorded. I developed it, but they were like, we want more and you are amazing and the group is amazing. And, you know, what you put out in when you get into this environment is what I said before, the possibility that things can work out for others, but also the realization that there are going to be obstacles that as humans, we usually face the same struggles. Like, you know, I have worked with very high profile people and I have seen them up close and personal. And I can say that the anxieties and the fears they have are the same ones I have. And the same ones you have. Right. So that doesn't change. Right. And when you put together a group of like minded people, even if they had different backgrounds and different businesses and careers, the opportunity to put together people who wanted to thrive on the basis of their ideas was very powerful. So that was the inspiration I had. And once people were taking the course and after, because nothing is like an overnight switch, success, whatever, but I would start getting all these, you know, emails from the participants saying, you know, that idea I had, I turned it into this business. Oh, you know, every time I go back and refresh the materials, I get the courage to take a step forward. And so that is, you know, I think that humans, we are in this world to serve. We are in this world to give people something that they don't have. Right. And so for me, was, this was a very, very, it, it opened my eyes to give something and it also inspired me to write the book. So when the pandemic hits, I find myself not having to travel the world not having to be out in every show, every day, every gallery, and whatnot. And so I took the information that was in the course, I refined it, I added, I expounded, and like that was what the book is about.
1: That is amazing. I think it's really phenomenal that of all the stories that we're hearing about how folks took that time, to do something introspective, put something out into the world, create, help others, or for the first time, do nothing at all, which is absolutely <laughs> fine. But I love that that's what birthed this phenomenal body of work. Thanks. So there's so many interesting things and takeaways in the book. Everyone should go out there and get it. I'm not going to give everything away. But what would you consider to be some ascension, essential guiding principles in the book?
0: Look, I think that people underestimate the power of their ideas. I think that everything has to started with an idea, right? From the iPhone that you hold in your hands or you're listening to this thing with right now to the type of clothes we wear, everything started with an idea. And that is the genesis of creative thinking and creativity. And I think also that because that concept has been somewhat co-opted by either artists or people in tech, perhaps through innovation, then we have 99% of the people thinking, is this for me too, right? And so I think that the framework of the book is telling people you are creative by birth. And if it has been buried because of societal norms or because of education or because the way people say or think or this and that, then it's time to open yourself up to the opportunity of bringing that out. And by giving people examples of Real life stories of my life, stories in the lives of the artists, stories in the lives of big entrepreneurs. I am connecting the dots by showing them that it is possible for them as well. And the every chapter ends with a practical note because I invite the reader to go and test and try what has been written in that particular chapter. So I want the book to be alive. I want the book to be. Full of takeaways so that you are not left with just this. Th- it, it wouldn't even be the theory because there's not that much theory. You wouldn't be just left with the anecdotal part. You would go and test it yourself. And one it's a call to action. It's a call to action. And I mean, you don't have to do them, but I, the people who actually go through them and do them are usually the ones who see the biggest and most impactful things happening for themselves in terms of ideas, in terms of expansion of their growth mindset, which is ultimately, I think everybody should consider growth mindset as a part of who they are. And What, What do you mean by that
1: growth mindset?
0: Well, look, how do we grow? We grow by learning new things. We grow by taking risks. We grow by... You know, knowing that we are going to fail and doing it anyway, because there is no straight line to success. And even if you have collected a lot of successes, you have also collected an enormous amount of failures too, right? So, growth mindset is something that I think human beings who are invested in evolution, in the evolution of their careers and their lives and their businesses should embrace. And one of the first things, really, for a growth mindset is learning, is like, I didn't know that, you know, or like I'm open to seeing a different perspective or I want to try that. Right. You know, people say I already knew everything that was written in that book or this or that. OK, fine. But, you know, I don't know anybody who knows it all. You right. Know?
1: So there's always something to learn.
0: Yeah. So growth mindset is something that I personally convinced is part of being creative, is part of evolving and growing. And I understand that the lives that we live, especially, I mean, post-pandemic is like feels like faster than before is more and more. Right. So I feel that with the lives we live, people don't necessarily take the time to increase their knowledges, to open themselves up to something new. And that is a shame because if you already know very well what you're doing and it's like you're efficient, you're super productive, you know so well that you know ins and outs of your business and it's like smooth sailing in whatever you're going to be stopped at some point because something's going to come and hit you, whether it is technology or social media or a competitor or, you know. the So never be too comfortable in what you do because it's not going to be that for too long. And the acceleration of these changes in the last five years is just compounded, right? Right. It happens more and more because, again... There is technology, there is AI, there that are metaverses, whatever. Something new every year. So every <laughs> something new every month, I would say. True. So the the way I feel that people grow and and expand is through their ideas and through connecting dots and taking action. And so that's, you know, part of like how I see this growth mindset. So
1: Feeling stuck creatively is something that so many people experience. Whether you're in a creative field or in a field that isn't necessarily deemed as creative by society, what advice do you share in how creativity rules the world? About feeling stuck creatively, and what can you do?
0: Well, you know, there's no magic in there. There is magic, obviously, in in the universe, but the big breakthroughs come in in people's lives after series of events and trying and trying and trying something right
1: repetition you talk about repetition it's a lot
0: it's a lot of repetition but it's also the work so when people are feeling that they are stuck the thing the only thing that really takes people from a stagnant feeling is action so if you're just there waiting for the answer to come and you're normally a person who takes more on the passive role, then you have to really go and do something about it, right? I mean, send that email or three or four or go and do, you know, a long walk and, you know, participate of conversations with other people, have a proactive approach to life. If you're a writer, you know, just go and bang those keys, right? Because a lot of people feel that, Yes, silence, muse, inspiration, all that is super important. And actually, I balance these concepts in the book because people who are doing, doing, doing all the time and they don't have the, the presence of mind to say, I have to stop for a little bit. Those are one extreme, but the other ones are like, let me wait for this hit, the muse to come and show up with fairy tales, you know, and things like that. then that's a problem too. So it's finding that balance between doing and waiting for the answer to come. And a lot of scientists have actually written and explained this phenomena of you gather information, you think about your problem, you put it together, you start digging, you start doing research, you call, you show up, you cross the street, whatever it is that you need to do, you go to the movie theater You know, you show up at the restaurant of your, you know, competitor, whatever it is, right, that you need to do. And then you let it go for a little bit so that you that's the incubation effect, right? Like you wait for a little bit, you take your mind off the problem and you can do this in as long as a month or as compressed in one day. Right. I mean, it's it's all about having the the finesse of knowing yourself and finding the balance between doing and waiting for that answer to hit you. And so that's why meditation is so important as well, because it's built time on purpose to be alone in silence, not sleeping, because that's different, but to be awake, eyes closed, breathe in, breathe out. Start with five minutes. If you can take it to 20, amazing. But I think that people, when they hear meditation and cross legs and lotus position, they get like freaked out. So, you know, five minutes sitting on a chair, eyes closed, attention to your breath. If you do this every day, you're potentially going to see miracles in your life. But you also have to be open. The, the number one characteristic that every person who is creative and profit from their ideas is curiosity and openness, mm. So if you're not curious, and that goes back to learning and and wanting to be educated with something new by anybody that you would like to invite, right? A book, a podcast, a TV show, whatever is of value. And so that openness and that curiosity is absolutely vital for businesses, for artists, for anything. I mean, you can't have progress without creativity you can't have progress without ideas innovation you can't really move forward society without having all these things
1: and curiosity
0: curiosity is very important
1: well said well said so you're constantly creating and developing you have such an incredible body of work and many accomplishments over the years but what have been some of your most exciting projects
0: you know, that's a very interesting question because I feel that I cherish in my heart everything that I have done. And I'm always sort of like, I did it, I love it. But I'm trying to think about the future in in a way that it doesn't... I don't want to be stuck in the past. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be far too... Like, if you are too far ahead in the future, you're not really living, right? That doesn't seem
1: to work for a lot of folks. <laughs> you always hear someone saying, oh, we were, that was a brilliant idea, but we were too early. Right. That's something else we can talk about. Maybe now or another time, being too early. Yeah. I think it's, you know, there's some connection between the action, the curiosity, the application with the being too early. But back to you.
0: Well, <laughs> I am I, very proud of the exhibitions that I have curated around the world because that gave me also, an opportunity to try curatorial projects with amazing artists. In particular, I'm very fond of a an exhibition I curated in Greece in 2016. That's one of
1: my favorites. I was I was going to say, I wonder if you, some of your favorites align with some of my Maria. Brito.
0: Well, because it. it was 2016, and and it was a time not only was I able to put together a show in an extraordinary location in Mykonos in a beautiful gallery that, you know, it doesn't look like a gallery, it looks like a house, but it, it you know, amazing. But it was, the artists that I invited to participate on that group show, many of them were very close to having this big breakthroughs, like Nina Chanel Abney, or Koss even, who's, I think that was his last group show ever, or Austin Lee, who's, Phenomenal. So we had this insanely brilliant, successful artists who were so almost getting like to that big thing. On the brink. And they did. And so I, you know, feel that it was a, a collaborative approach of many different minds of bringing a very interesting concept to Europe and working, the owner of the gallery is my friend today, and I love her dearly, and we have done many things together. So, you know, it's like having the emotion of something that did very well and that it also spread a lot of joy for a lot of different people. So, then
1: it, it was a very tough time in, in Greece yes. at the moment. I remember because we share our mutual love of Greece and you gave me tips about where to go and back and forth. And I remember very intently about you talking to me about this project and then seeing it come together so beautifully was incredible. But Greece was also going through a tough time and you brought together these phenomenal artists for this wonderful show and you put a book together for that Mm -hmm. that has been on my coffee table ever since. I love it. So, yeah, that's that was phenomenal. One of my favorite projects. Thank you. Well, as well,
0: we aligned on that. And I think that it's it's a beautiful memory of something that I'm very proud of. I I feel that, you know, it's good to have that in your in your heart and in your mind, although nobody ever remembers anything. You know what I mean? I do. I know but look again like we live we live in the times where everybody thinks that you're as good as your light as your last trade that's what you know Wall Street people say you're as good as your last trade doesn't matter if you make five billion dollars in the last five years if your last one was a negative people are like "Uh ah
1: you're out you know right right you've done like 20 different things (laughs) since then that we can that we can all talk about but you know, that being said, I, I want to talk about the fact that you are a marketing machine. You really are. There are so many times that we had chats about your strategy and so forth, and you absolutely didn't need a thing for me because <laughs> I just basically listen and then watched you whip out something 50 times, literally greater than I even imagined or envisioned you doing. And And just how do you do that? I think it's so hard as a professional to focus on the core of your business and then excel at branding yourself and expanding your, you know, creating reach. What is it inside? What makes you tick? How? How?
0: Wow. Mindy, coming from you, whom I have the greatest respect for what you do and how you do it. I don't even know if I'm qualified to answer this, but I think that I was thinking about this yesterday, actually. And, you know, when people go to business school or whatever and they 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 have the dreams of opening a business or, you know, start projects and ventures of their own they are usually being told that they are going to have to spend about 75% of their time marketing, you know, after they raise the money, right? Because like that's a full-time job at the beginning, In and of itself. So while I don't think that 75% of my time could be in marketing because then it would really take from what I do for the clients and so on and so forth, which is a lot of learning and a lot of like showing them new things and negotiating with galleries, et cetera. I think that, Marketing is something that comes natural to me in the sense that i'm I, I don't have any fear of anxiety about putting myself out there, right? right in a way that I think represents my values and who I am and as I have grown older, as you know, there is a little less of a the weight that the press used to have. Right. And, and, you know, this has changed. Right. Like everybody likes, you know, a profile in New York Times, which I already got before all this, you know, hoopla and all this kind of you don't even know who you're writing or writing about anymore. You know, of you, all... you've
1: been published in every pretty much every top leading publication. Well, you. but what Go I'm ahead. saying
0: is that that I understand it has changed. Yeah. Right. Like it's not
1: the power of the,
0: the power of that. And I'm not saying it's not good. I love it. If The New York Times is listening, I'm still here. (laughs) But what I'm trying to say is that uh, people have so much power in their hands to craft their image through social media, appearance, whatever you want, right? And I say, look, I'm not on TikTok. I know that's the hottest thing. My children are there. And I'm not sure... If right now with all that I have going on, my time is well spent crafting and it it could be a repurposed, you know, content from Instagram or whatever. But what I'm saying is marketing is something where you have to utilize your resources, where you get the highest return on investment. The art collectors and the people that I serve are not on TikTok. Right. They might be. It might be my kids' peers. Right. You know, it might be my kids. Gonna, I'm going to turn them into clients. Yes. But what I'm saying is that. Put your attention in marketing on first where there is like the least amount of friction, which is social media, because you have a direct connection to whomever is browsing or looking or your audience that is already there or whatever. Once you move on to something that somebody else has control of, right? Like, oh, the next thing would be, let's say, press or whatever. It's more friction. It's more time that you have to spend trying to get there. It can happen. It is necessary for certain businesses, but some others are going to see a very small return of investment trying to get those, you know, press hits and things like that. Podcasts are all the rage, right? And so that is also a marketing tool. and. Look, I think that the 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 marketing aspect of running a business has to do so much with the owner, the CEO, the fa- the face of the business being so prepared to tell the story, to be an excellent storyteller with images, with voice, with you know, a cohesiveness, right? Yeah. That AI will never be able to do, right? I mean, I have all the sort of people freaking out of like And, you know, there will be AI artists and AI music. And I said, okay, fine. But once, you know, people have to show up in person or like in this setting we are right now, they are going to have to explain everything that they've been doing themselves and they they are going to have to articulate narratives and articulate narratives are not something that everybody can do. And so... For anybody who's thinking about marketing and how to market yourself, I suggest you go through the exercise of writing down who you are, what your values are, who do you want to appeal to? And, and that's very important. Do not fall in into the trap of thinking, I want everybody to love me. Right. Because that's not how things work, especially as we become more and more niche, right? I mean, like, and you know this. There are singers and hip hop artists that my kids follow that I have never heard of. They have thirty million followers on Instagram. They have two hundred million followers on TikTok, and that is considered niche. And I don't even know who they are. I'm telling you, right. and I, I don't, I don't even want to name the names because I don't want to sound silly, but. It's important really for people to understand that niche is not so small as we used to consider before, right? Like, oh, niche is like a hundred people. No, niche now is a much bigger thing, but it's a lot of alignment of what they want and what you offer. And look, I mean, it. I understand the messages you put out in the world stay there forever. So be extraordinarily cautious not to the degree that it's going to stifle your image or the way you look, but to the degree that you don't want to have to regret in the future of putting something out there that is not you. In right. a moment of anger, rage, I don't know, you know, people get offended for everything. Just Just be, be careful. Be honest. Be truthful. You know, speak truth to power if need be, but be careful.
1: Right. I, as, you know... S- someone with a communications background, crisis management, I just wish some people would put a lid on it. Like, don't take your emotions to social media. Yeah. Because, you know, those things things pop up again. But anyway, that's some folks, that's their ministry and their way of getting recognition, and that's a strategy too. Yeah. But I think the takeaway is really that, you know, what I'm hearing from you is that marketing is important. Start where you can. Do what you can. And yes, the New York Times story and the media is powerful, but there are other things that you can do that may be lower hanging fruit and you should apply yourself.
0: You should. And, you know, I think that, again, like we live in the times, like you said, people want to cause a stare and that is a way of calling people's attention. It is not necessarily something that works out for everybody. right? You know, this can backfire tremendously, as you know. And things that you put out in the Internet stay there forever, no matter how many times you delete them. I've told my kids, you write with Sharpie on the Internet. It's not like, you know, (laughs) it's not a little pencil and then you're going to erase it. It is. And you you have to own your things. But as I'm telling you, as I get older, the priority for me in the marketing space is I want to be honest. I want to be truthful. I want to be someone who is giving value to people, right? Right. And not just showing my ass, you know, like that is the young me who was more insecure, who perhaps needed validation. And I think every human being likes to be recognized for their work. That is very important. There is nothing wrong in wanting applause and recognition. But when that becomes the only thing you're looking for, is a house of cards. Right. And we are going to start seeing more and more of those celebrities who've built their businesses around their asses and their house of cards crumbling unless they are able to come up with something way stronger. Cause we all get old, whether you like it or not. And right. as you get old, your mind changes, your perspective change, changes, you have a different spiritual dynamic and perspective with yourself and the world around you. And it is fun to think that you're always going to be relevant because you had a moment, but it is the truth that it's, it's, it's just not. It is a passing thing. Right, right.
1: And I think that's beautiful, too. There's a time and place for everything. So you recently had a TEDx talk, namely NFTs, graffiti, and sedition, how artists invent the future. I'm suggesting all of our listeners tune into that talk and hear all about it. But, but what's the gist of it?
0: What are you listen, listen, the future is always something that I consider to be part of my superpowers. Because, like you said, some people say, well, I was too early for it. And my idea is, okay, I'm early, but I am capitalizing. On the earliness of things, right? Whether it is me finding an artist that's going to be a big thing, or finding a a trend that becomes mainstream, those things are important. And artists throughout history have been considered prescient, have been considered people who can and will talk about things that become realities. And so what I try to do with the TEDx talk was to analyze the past. And I I talk about Basquiat. I talk about Hilma Afglant, who was the inventor of abstract art, but she was never recognized until much after she was dead. And I talk about just a handful of artists that showed us things that... Took place many years later in society, right? And so, what I am showing to the audience and the listeners is that if you pay attention to the artists and you behave in certain ways like them, you're also gonna be able to pay to be to to build your future. And for example, one of the things the artists always do is to pay attention to what's happening in the margins of society, right? Because Usually what's happening there, not everybody's paying attention to. And those are ripe with opportunity. And and I go back, I mentioned hip-hop a few times, but what was hip-hop? It was, you know, Bronx parties on the street of Caribbean and Black and Latino mixes of drums and beats and people painting graffiti. And so all these things were extraordinarily on the fringes of society, right? And look what it is right now. And this was the 70s. And the music producers who actually picked up the phone or heard the little friend, the little boy, the one and one those were the ones who profited from it, right? And so same thing that happened to Basquiat. Basquiat was in Brooklyn, and he was not necessarily interested in going to art school. I mean, he had school, but like, he was just on the streets, tagging walls and thinking about his background, you know, Haiti and Puerto Rico and putting all those things together and writing in Spanish and English, which was so sexy back then, way before Cardi B, you know, way before uh, all these people who actually now are like, oh, we are bilingual and we're so hot and this and that. So artists are consistently at the forefront on the cusp of what it is to invent the future. So. Same thing with NFTs, right? I mean, NFTs have a wide variety of applications, right? Like the whole blockchain technology can be used for smart contracts and can be used for authentication and many, many different things. And it is the same exact same technology that is used for the NFTs. And then why do we hear the word NFTs mainstream for the first time it was because of artists? So I think that if anybody is super interested in analyzing the lives of artists to extrapolate things that can have an impact in how you are conducting your business today so that you can have a foot on the future i would highly recommend that you do that
1: will do (laughs) you heard it from the pro herself can't wait to have everybody here that TEDx talk and send us messages to let us know what you think about it. Well, we'll circle back on that. So it's obvious that you're very passionate about supporting artists who work with you. Talk about that.
0: Well, you know, I, I just want to sort of explain a little bit how I work so that people understand the latitude of what I do. I don't necessarily represent artists because that's not my job. My job is to be an intermediary between galleries and collectors who don't have the time because honestly what I do is a full-time job so for anybody who would want to understand the art market the art world what to collect where to buy that they will have to dedicate themselves almost full-time or full-time right my friends who are collectors who do this on their own are mostly people who are retired and all my clients work and they are young and they are they don't have the time so What I do is identify assets and artists that will bring happiness and joy to my clients, but also an asset that grows over time, right? Like you don't want to spend money and then write it off. I can't promise anything because I am not Bernie Madoff, so I never make claims that this will just go up and up. You know, I don't do that. But I have a very good track record of working with and supporting young artists who see incredible success later on in their careers and also curating exhibitions, choosing artists who also are young and fresh and getting to that next level. So that is a very exciting part of seeing that growth because I put an intuitive bet, if you will, on them, right? I mean, of course, it's not a blind thing. I know that they have been, you know, working with certain collectors. I know I love what they are making and things like that. But it is, for the most part, it's a bet when you're working with young artists, right? Because if you're working with an old artist and, you know, someone who has had a 50-year career into retrospectives at the moment, then that's like, you know, everybody knows already, right? right? I mean, I think that the the cool thing is working with this young and hungry and, you know, phenomenal artists who are, by the way, getting their accolades younger and younger. Because that's the other phenomena we're seeing these days is that they are graduating from their MFAs or maybe they are self-taught or whatever. And then, you know, two years later, they are represented by this very big galleries. Two years later, they are in, like showing in museums. So it's like everything goes so that's fast. True. You don't <laughs> want them to burn out. You don't want them also to be overexposed. But the times have changed. And one of the things that honestly, as much as I may not like the speed of things, I have to adjust to the speed because I don't set the speed. Right. And that I think. Who sets the speed? The market. The market, the money. Right. Unfortunately or fortunately. I don't know. It's like the, the speed is set by an enormous amount of money that is circulating. Also, you know, uh, art became an asset class on its own. So when people have excess surplus and they are like, "Okay, well, I have the house, I have the yacht, I have the cars, I have trust for my children. What's next? right? Right. I mean, it's like, I mean, not everybody has to have all those things. But what I'm saying is that it became a very important asset class for people to diversify their investment. And that, although has existed for a long, long time, it caught up with much more people mainstream more recently. Also, it's a global market. So whatever is being offered is not just offered to me in the United States and New York, it's offered to someone in Hong Kong, it's offered to someone in Shanghai, it's offered to someone in London. So when you have a global market that has gotten so interested in the art market things happen faster because there is a limited amount of you know the, the the supply and the demand are a little unequal because you have an excellent artist who may have produced 10 paintings for a show and then you have 40 50 collectors who are dying for that specific artist right so this has also obviously When you have that kind of unequal demand supply thing, the market accelerates and it becomes a monster. And we have, you know, insanely huge numbers at auction houses. We have also art fairs that are multiplying. We have, you know, now Art Basel. It wasn't sufficient with, you know, Miami and Basel and Hong Kong. They also now have one in Paris. And you know, freeze. It wasn't not enough with one in New York and one in London. Now they have one in Seoul, and that also creates parallel events and ancillary fairs. And so, it is very, very big and it's very dynamic. And it's it's not what it used to be when I started this business for sure. It, it is it is a very different animal, an animal that I'm happy to pet and hug and and grow with. But it's it goes fast,
1: fast. Yeah. yeah. Well said. Well said. And you really did walk us through how that, you know, acceleration happens and you did it fantastically. I think a lot of folks will, will clearly understand that. It's exciting to watch, but it is overwhelming to keep up. And thankfully, there's folks like you that can help commandeer mm-hmm. everyday mm-hmm. professionals who are looking to build an asset class that have a discretionary income mm-hmm. to to create something and support artists. And And for the artists, that's fantastic. They need to eat. Yeah. They want to be employed. And this is why professionals like yourself are so, you know, fantastic in in what you do and and put out into the universe. So let's talk about entrepreneurship. I think we've touched upon it. Yeah. Quite a bit in our conversation thus far. But as we know, it isn't easy, Mm -hmm. but it's also so very rewarding. What are some of the challenges you face as you continue to build?
0: Look, one of the things that entrepreneurs spend the most time cracking, you know, their minds and and sort of like trying to figure out is how do I scale? And the truth is, scaling is not for every business. And this is very important because some things can't be scaled. Right. When you are giving extraordinary service to your clients, you can't replicate that hiring more Marias, more humendis, you know it it's uh, the the training, the cost of doing that will be just not possible. and so the you know, as you know, I once for th- two and a half years or three years, I ventured into products. And that was a very fun thing. And that was a way to scale. But it was not for me because I was basically running two businesses within a business. It was a services business and a product business dealing with factories, dealing with distribution. It was just, man, horrible. I mean, that's the truth. I learned a lot. I I actually consulted several times after that for other bigger companies that came and asked me how do we do these collaborations with artists and can you please help us streamline it and I did with uh, look the the beauty of that is that the the experience doesn't go anywhere right it right. stays with me and luckily in the United States at least manufacturing is the same thing as in the 1980s as <laughs> so, so you know i I learned this you know ten years ago, whatever, and it hasn't changed too much, but scalability I think that you've gotta be super super careful with with how you approach that if you're considering and growing and it's like people who receive you know great amount of money on venture capital or whatever, and they grow too fast, I've seen also those things be counterproductive for the brand, for how people perceive you and for what ultimate, what kind of, again, service or product you want to put in the world. So I think that the challenge of being an entrepreneur and how you grow, it's usually the, well, knowing that it's it's a very unstable path right? That you are going to have moments of growth and, you know, abundance and whatnot. And then you may have slow months, you may have periods where things, you know, like seasons that are not the best, things that are weird. And, you know, the challenge is like, be well capitalized, be careful with how you use your money, be careful with the projects you take, the risks you take. It is excellent to take risk; as part of being an entrepreneur, but also calculate them well. Yes, and and make sure to listen to your own intuitive self, to your intuition, to you know your gut, because that's usually is of much better guidance than you know anybody with with three MBAs and seven PhDs in math and business. whatever. You know, it's, it's it's very important to know yourself. It is very important to know your business. A lot of people, again, you start not knowing and that is fine. Like I did. I didn't really know. I, I, it was just crazy. And so because I wasn't under anybody at a gallery or at an auction house, I, I had to do two things. I had to learn how to run a business and I had to learn the business itself because I was a collector and I was just watching people doing it in a way that I thought I could do better. So these two things together were definitely a combination that shouldn't have paid off, but it did. So I believe that the basics of the business that you're trying to get into are usually the same, you know. And so those are the things that I consider that you have to learn very well and also be on top of the changes because that's the other thing. And that is one of the biggest criticisms of of the enormous gigantic companies that are wonderful in the United States, but that they never, they could never innovate or move as fast as their younger peers because of bureaucracy and how big and whatnot, right? I mean, and so when when you're a business owner, agility is very important, agility, right? And so, yes, growth is great. And you should absolutely aim for growth, but also how do you stay nimble is a very important thing that I think that sometimes people do not consider when they are thinking about the future, when they are thinking about changes. Like the people who were able to innovate the fastest and accommodate the fastest during the pandemic were the people who actually got the rewards of it, right? Those who couldn't convey, those who couldn't shift, those who couldn't pivot fast enough, they didn't survive.
1: Right. Well said, well said. Amazing. So I think you talked about this in the beginning. I just want to talk about, you know, all the accolades you received. So you've received many accolades and awards for your work over the years. We mentioned in the intro that Complex Magazine named you one of the 20 Power Art Players back in 2020 and Art News named you one of the visionaries who gets to shape the art world. What is it like to receive these special honors and recognition and what keeps you motivated to continue making a strong impact with the work that you do every day?
0: Well I said before it's a great thing human beings love to be recognized. It is part of the human desire to be understood and to be appreciated in what you do. So that's a great thing. I feel that, wow, amazing that I came from the left field and I was able to make an impact in the world because of how I do things. And I am very thankful for that. Hmm, I mean, does it like take me from no i mean really honestly it's it's funny because that i just thought about the story of this psychiatrist who i forgot his name he did a a documentary with jonah hill on netflix and he's the hollywood psychiatrist right and shrink and whatnot and he wrote many books two books at least and one is called the tools which is the documentary is based on that a little bit. And he said he has a an Oscar special because all the actors and actresses and directors and whatever who are his patients come on the sixth day after they win the Oscar and they're like, I feel the same. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, and so this Ilius, I mean, that, because I say this is a very big example, as we know how important Hollywood is, as an industry in the United States. And actually, I respect that tremendously because the work that goes for them is no joke. Yeah. And the point is that no Oscar, no Grammy, no Nobel Prize is going to give you absolutely anything for more than five days if you don't know your worth, who you are, the... The the riches of your life are so bigger, so much bigger than those accolades. The riches of your life come from the people you serve, the family you build, the things that you do, the good that you do, the, you know, the full understanding of your place right now, because everybody is right now here because of a reason. You came to the time you were meant to come, right? So that when, when people fully grasp that, it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter the, the prizes. It doesn't matter the applause. And everybody who does their job with integrity and excellence deserves all the accolades, whether you get them or not. We don't know. But what we do know is that. People who operate within those standards of integrity and excellence are much happier and mm-hmm. much more fulfilled than if you're just chasing the FDA, whatever, award. word, I don't know, all those things. You know what yeah, I- I'm yeah. trying to say is that the happiness that comes from those things is very fleeting, Right. very fleeting, and that it's almost like being a cocaine addict, right? You get the high. And the next day, you wake up with a hangover. That is horrific. Not that I am one, but <laughs> I, but I have had friends who battled addiction. So I just the point is, I'm thankful. I like the I like the recognition for what I have done. But if it if without that, I will still be me, and it, I will real. still have to show up every day. And I would still have to do my things the best way I can. And I don't even remember those things.
1: I hope that really touched and inspired someone out there because, you know, some some of us work so hard and it just doesn't seem that we're getting the recognition and accolades or whatever it is that other people may be getting. And it's not it's nice, but it's not necessary because you show up for yourself every day and just keep walking your race. I think that's the important thing here. Speaking of the riches of life, you have such a beautiful family. thing. I love your sons. What legacy are you leaving for them? Because I know it's so important to you and your work.
0: Uh, you know, that is the best job, honestly, I've ever had is, is to be their mom. And time goes by very quickly, as you know. Yeah. And now they are teenagers and I am sort of Brokenhearted that they're going to go to college. <laughs> I mean, it's not that I want them out the door. Like a lot of parents are like, please just go. No, I'm very happy. I had a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun with my kids. I have a lot of fun with my husband. And I think that the legacy is you teach your kids by doing and they learn by observing. If I say something and do something else, they are going to ultimately learn either a kind of confusing landscape of life or they are just going to learn the things that they see me doing right mm-hmm. so i feel and i hope that they have gotten the idea that there is no free lunch that they're, the things that gave you the highest level of satisfaction are the ones that you have worked for and that doesn't mean you have to go through a horrific, rocky path. And I also don't believe in that kind of like the whole suffering mm-hmm. and, and horrendous things to come to the other side. I, I feel that, that everybody so. has their own road and path and some people have it smooth, smoother and some people had it more jagged and whatever. But I feel that everybody has to work. Everybody has to put in the hours everybody has to dedicate themselves. The work that you do is important, no matter at what level you are right now. And, you know, I I I get it. We are in a different time. We are in, in the Gen Z sped up thing and whatnot. But th- that the more I see the changes in society and technology, the more realize that certain things never change. And one of the things that never change is your work ethic, is the whatever you say you do, otherwise don't say it, and show up, show up on time, show, you know, like I hope my children get to live with the way that me and my husband have shown up for them and that they also appreciate and love art and artists the way that we do and so with that I think that I'd be happy you know to see them go anywhere they want to go with that
1: amazing amazing so one more question for you what's next in the art world what do you see what are you excited about any artists what are your thoughts
0: well the art world Again, we'll continue to grow because as long as we have collectors buying, there will be activity and there will be a massive amount of money rolling. I think that the underrepresented artists are going to keep thriving. And we talked about Latinos, Black women, non-binary Everything that has to do with like, again, marginalized throughout history or underrepresented groups will continue catching more and more of the spotlight. And that is very important because. I mean, you have no idea how many people have come to me and said, oh, my God, because of that show or because of this artist, then I can see myself in that. Right. I think or like oh, now that I see that there is a Black artist that is making Mm -hmm. millions of dollars because they are, and is having shows at the Whitney, then I can too, right? So that is important that it exists. It's also important for collectors of any color to open doors to this artist Mm -hmm. and to champion them, right? I mean, to champion them, we have an insane platform in the United States for philanthropy and for collectors who are supporting museum shows donating to museum shows you know building up their legacy and the legacy of this artist which is a wonderful thing to do it's not just a one-sided thing it's it's a very collaborative and you know spiritual approach also to collecting And we are going to see a variety of different online platforms. Online sales are very important for the art market, especially because you can reach anybody anywhere, you know, online. So I think that we're going to see a lot more online platforms. I don't necessarily feel that there is anything groundbreaking happening in that space. I do happen to have met recently with someone who owns a company, called Event, okay. and, uh, and what, what he does, the owner and the company, is that they partner with amazing artists to produce prints and objects. And the way they do it is they bought the printing company in London and they nice. partner. Yeah, he grew tremendously. It's based both in London and Amsterdam, and his name is Christian, the owner. And he's very young and its I am amazed at his business because what he does is he puts the artist first in the sense that he's not willing to produce things that are not at a certain level. So he's giving access to very young collectors to buy prints. My clients don't buy that, but like he's giving access to young artists to buy prints and editions and objects from this very famous artist, but he catches them in the right time, you know? He just
1: has the instinct. He's he's
0: watching, he's there, and he was smart enough to buy this amazing printing company in London and to also have like some partnership with some marble fabricators and I don't know what other things. And I think that while nothing is new in the art world about prints or objects, he did in a way that makes sense where he has, you know, his newsletters and he has his, you know, social media and whatnot. So we'll see. I mean, it's, it's going to continue growing and it's going to continue expanding. And galleries are going to keep opening new spaces in different places. There are different hubs for the art world that are way far outside the United States. So I'm excited to be there to watch.
1: Amazing. Well, ladies and gentlemen, my friend Maria Brito.
0: Thank you, Mindy. I am so flattered. And thank you, everybody who listened to this conversation. Yeah. So
1: tell everybody, where can we find you?
0: All right. So come to my website. It's MariaBrida.com. That's B as in boy, R as in rose, I as in island, T as in Tom, O.com. And there are forms there to fill out if you want to reach out to me by email and all the different links to my social media, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, etc.
1: Bravo, bravo. I'm your host, YouMindy Francis, and this is What's Next podcast. You can find me at YouMindy360 on Instagram and YouMindy Francis on LinkedIn. Take care.